All right, Romans chapter 4. We're going to pick up here where we left off and try to get in because I'm going to, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go at this a little bit differently than I have before. Uh, I'm going to try to get through the whole chapter, but I'm not going to qu- go quite as slow verse by verse. Okay, so since we're teaching, uh, I'm not going to get too hung up I, I, on, on whether or not we make it through or not. But I do want to get something through to you because what I'm going to be doing is tonight especially is I'm going to be setting you up for later. Um, there's a lot of uh, false doctrines that come out of your Bible. Um, I, I heard a preacher joking around, and I thought it was a phenomenally great idea. He said sometimes he'd like to get up in some of these churches, and on, uh, on Monday night he'd like to preach, uh, you can lose your salvation, so you better serve the Lord, because if you don't, you're going to lose it and just walk out. And then on Tuesday night, get up and preach eternal security and then just walk out. And then on Wednesday night, get up and preach about speaking in tongues. And if you haven't had the manifestation of the gifts of the Spirit, then you don't know for sure you're saved and just walk out. And then the next night, get up and preach about how the sign gifts are the type of the, the Antichrist and then just walk out. Just leave them sitting there like, what in the world is going on, you know? He said, I think that'd be great. Because the fact of the matter is, is that uh, when it comes to the Bible in church, it seems like people kind of believe what they want to believe rather than what the Bible teaches. And uh, most people approach the Bible, pretty much approach any subject with an agenda. Uh, I had about four or five answers to prayer on Monday, Um, literally on Monday. I prayed Monday morning. I had about four or five answers to prayer by about 3 o'clock Monday afternoon. One of the answers to prayer was I asked God for an opportunity to witness, and he answered that one three times. I'm talking about different. That doesn't count as like four of the five answers or whatever. And uh, I, got, I got like three opportunities that don't, don't ask God to do that if you've got a busy day or something you want to get done. Because nowadays witnessing ain't like, you know, real quick and easy. And uh, I got an opportunity to witness and it was a real blessing because I uh, got, got into the conversation with a couple of Roman Catholics. They're a young Roman Catholic couple. And uh, they actually brought the whole thing up. I, I realized halfway through the conversation, the Holy Spirit said, remember what you asked me a couple hours ago? And I was like, oh yeah, here we are, aren't we? And uh, they were talking about, uh, you know, just kind of like the Bible really being what's more important. What does the Bible actually teach? And I'm like, yeah, exactly. And uh, what about when religion goes against the Bible? And I pointed out to them that it seems like everybody, and I think this is fair. This is a fair, this is a fair thing to say. Everybody starts with their conclusion. So if you don't want to believe that there's a God, then you, that's where you're at, right? And then you start working your way backward from your conclusion to try to prove that what you believe is right. Right? Uh, People do the same thing when it comes to uh, wanting to prove there is a God. 100%. I told them, I said, everybody's got an angle. I got one. I got an agenda. 100%. I'll I'll be honest with you about it. That's the difference between me and everybody else. I'll tell you right up front, I got an angle. The angle I got is I want you to know there's a God. I want you to know where you're going when you die, and I want you to know that that God gave you His words so that you can know what God wants you to know personally. You don't have to filter that through a priest or through a religion or through a church or through a preacher. You need to know from God what God has for you. That's my job here tonight, period. That's my job. I was thinking about it. I was thinking about it this week because it, so many, so much is going on nowadays in churches, and I, I even watch it in some of my friends or guys that I would appreciate. It's like there's this desperation to try to grow the church because people aren't coming to church anymore. There's a desperation to reach people, so it's like we got to do something. We got to get more programs. We got to get creative. And we got to come up with this thing. Why don't you just put some food out there and just let them come sit down and eat? And if they got some good food, and they'll come back where they know there's good food. 
That's my job. The, the primary job that I have with my life is to study this book and get the answers and then lay it out there for you so that you can learn what God wants you to learn from the book in your lap. I don't want to undermine your faith in the Bible. I want to build your faith in the Bible. And I want you to see why we believe what we believe. So what's going to happen is as we go through here, I'm going to show you some proof texts for people that disagree with us because they take verses from the Bible and they build what they believe off of verses from the Bible. And that's where people get so confused. So it's, well, how do you know the way you view the Bible is right? How do you know your interpretation is right? I don't believe in fooling down around with interpretation. I believe it says what it says. We just read it and believe it. You don't have to worry about trying to interpret the Bible all the time. I'm going to give you an illustration of that before we leave tonight of what I'm talking about. I'm setting you up for my conclusion right now. Just, just believe what's there and read what's there. And when you don't understand something, just keep going. Don't get hung up on what you don't understand. And ask God for wisdom. Ask God for light. Study your Bible. Compare Scripture with Scripture. Never interpret a confusing passage based alone on a confusing passage. Always interpret a confusing passage with a clear passage, even when they may not seem to go together. Make the light from the clear passage interpret the confusing passage. Does that make sense? The best commentary on your Bible is your Bible. Right? And the Bible tells you that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. Okay, so now here's how that is practically applied in a very legitimate way. You can legitimately, practically apply your Bible to this. Well, what do you think it means? Well, what's it mean to you? What's it mean to you? What's it mean to you, right? Well, what's everybody doing? They're privately interpreting the passage. And that's a great application of that verse. But what that verse is actually teaching you doctrinally is, you don't take one verse of the Bible and interpret that one verse based on that one verse. God gave you a whole system of checks and balances that spans thousands of years, multiple continents, and multiple different authors. Isn't that wild? So you can study that book and you don't privately interpret it. The best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. So you absolutely can learn your Bible. You can know exactly what God has you to believe and you can know that the doctrine you have is the right doctrine with confidence. If you study the Bible, and the number one thing about studying the Bible is that the Holy Spirit of God is the teacher of the Bible. Do you understand that? Did you hear what I said? Well, pastor, you're the teacher. Pastors and teachers. What, what is that? If I'm a pastor and teacher, what is that? It's a gift of what? It's a gift of the Holy Spirit of God. It's something the Holy Spirit of God puts in me. So if you sit here and learn your Bible, where did you learn it from? You learned it from the Holy Spirit of God. You can't learn the Bible. I don't care what I do, how much I try to make sense of it, how much I detail it, how I spell it out, how I jackhammer it into your heads. It will never get into your heart. It'll never make sense to you if the Holy Spirit of God doesn't get it done. So before we go any farther, let's ask him to help us. Father, we love you tonight. We thank you so much for our church. Thank you for this book that you've given to us. And God, thank you so much for what you showed me. I really believe you've helped me this week. And I appreciate it. God, one of these verses has always given me fits, and you sure clear, clarified it for me, and I pray you'd help me to be able to clarify it for others. And God, we realize that we can't do these things in our own strength, so we're looking for your help tonight. We ask you to teach us the Scriptures, and God, by chance, if anybody's here tonight not saved, help them to realize how bad they need to get saved. We pray it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.
Romans 4.1, what shall we say then? That Abraham our father, as pertaining to the flesh, hath found. For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. For what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God, and was counted unto him for righteousness. Now, to him that worketh is the, grace, is, is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, and believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness." All right, so what you're seeing here is as we start into Romans chapter 4, Paul is going to use Abraham as an illustration, an Old Testament illustration or a type of your salvation. Now, now watch, I'll show you as we go through here. What Paul is not saying, and you cannot show me that Paul says it, Paul is not saying Abraham got saved the same way you do. But I'm going to show you the proof verse that, that they used to tell you he was. What happens is when they come to the Bible, when stuff doesn't fit in their imagination, their preconceived notions, their belief system, or what they've heard preached and always thought was true, and they run into a passage that doesn't seem to fit that, they freak out because it's like, well, that can't be. Well, why not? <laughs> if that's what the Bible says, then that's what it is. That's not heresy if the Bible teaches it. So in the Old Testament, they were not saved the same way you are. Jesus Christ had not died on the cross yet. You understand that? So there was a whole list of rules that they had back then. That's just Brother Mike. It's all good. <laughs> he always announces when he has to go to the bathroom too. He says, I got to pee, and gets up and walks out. And everyone's like, we kind of already figured, but we're glad you're here. <laughs> Half of you look, so I just might as well tell you it's okay. It's Brother Mike. He can get away with it. You can't, okay? So, so they were not saved by looking forward to the cross. You have to understand that God has dealt differently with people throughout time. And he recorded all that in the Bible. Not only that, but God's going to continue to deal differently in the future. And that's in the New Testament of your Bible. So that's why when we approach the Bible, how come they believe the one thing and they believe another and you all say the Bible teaches what you believe? Yes, but if you are applying the wrong part of the Bible, you're all off base. You got it wrong. So we know we're right because we're studying what's to us, okay? So he's using Abraham as a type of your salvation. Now let me just point out a couple of things here real quick. Look at verse number one. What shall we say then that Abraham our father? Now you all remember what I, what I preached on and kind of got aggressive with on Sunday afternoon. About what? Calling old man your... Well, preacher, he says, Abraham, our father. You know what he's talking about? As pertaineth to the... Do you know a Roman Catholic will come to a verse like this or a priest will come to a verse like this and they'll say, see, there's nothing wrong with calling him your father. But he's not calling him that in a spiritual sense. He didn't call him holy father. He's not giving him the name that Jesus Christ gave to God, Holy Father. Do you see the difference? There's a massive difference there. He's our father according to the flesh. He's a father of the Gentiles and of the Jews. We'll see it in a second. Go to another passage, though. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 4. I'll show you how they take passages of the Bible and they interpret these passages independently without seeing what's being talked about in the context for one. And then for two, without comparing Scripture to Scripture. Uh, my preacher told me years ago, and I just I memorized the statement the moment he said it because it was good. He said, anything out of context is a pretext. In other words, if you pull a verse out of its context, you make it fit your preconceived notion of what you want it to say. 
Anything out of context is a pretext. So that's how you can study your Bible and be sure that you got it right. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, look at verse 15. For though ye have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet have ye not many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel. Now, if I want that to say, there's nothing wrong with calling me Father Mike, I could make it say that. But that's not what he's saying. He said, you got all these guys that want to come in here and tell you what to believe, and you got all these, these, these jack legs on the internet that are out there trying to get in your head and tell you what to believe. But who led you to Christ? If I led you to Christ, then spiritually to say he's my spiritual father is not giving that man the title of Holy Father, Father Reagan. He's using a father and a spiritual family illustration and a spiritual application to say, you don't have many fathers. Have not I begotten you? Didn't I lead you to Christ? Why are you listening to all these other... Is it, am I not the man God used to bring you the truth? Why are you listening to all these other guys? So they pull a, a verse like that out, out of context and make it say what they want it to say. Back to Romans chapter 4. So he says as pertaining to the flesh hath found. Now look at verse 2. For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. We'll come back to that in just a little bit. Because what that tells you, if you look at it in a superficial reading, and don't stop and compare Scripture to Scripture, that tells you Abraham was not justified by works, right? Look at it. You know what the Baptist fundamental brethren say? Here's proof that Abraham was saved just like you. He wasn't justified by works. You're never saved by works in any dispensation, past, present, or future. To which we agree in the current dispensation, you're not. Now, I'll circle back to this in just a little bit. But that's a confusing verse. Based on what I've taught you about Abraham and Old Testament salvation, and based on what we know about salvation in the, in the tribulation period, based on what we know about salvation in the millennium, where obviously in the millennium he's ruling and reigning in Jerusalem on a throne, and you can go look at him. How is that salvation by faith? People are still, babies are still being born, you understand that? To sinful parents in the millennium. We'll see it as we go through Revelation. How are they saved the same way you're saved? So it's pretty obvious, but then you come to a verse like this and say, well, I guess they were saved in the Old Testament by faith and without works. And that's a little bit of a confusing verse. Don't worry, it's going to get more confusing in a minute. Now look at verse 3. So as this applies, using Abraham as an illustration for you and I, as this applies to us, we can clearly see that we are not justified by works. You see how he's making that application? You're not. Verse 3, for what saith the scripture, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. Alright, so what that is, is that's imputed righteousness. He got something counted to his account that he didn't earn. Now that's very clear in that verse. There's no question about that. Abraham got imputed righteousness by a gift from God. Is that how you got saved? You got imputed righteousness by a gift from God. He hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. 
He switched places with you on the cross. He took your sin upon himself and he gave you his righteousness the moment you trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior by grace, through faith, plus nothing, minus nothing, not of works lest any man should boast. There's none righteous, no, not one. We've seen it as we're going through Romans. You got something imputed to you the second you got saved with no works involved just by believing the gospel and trusting Jesus Christ as your Savior. He gave you the righteousness of Christ. That's what he's saying. He's giving you this illustration. He's using Abraham from the Old Testament as the illustration. Look at verse 4. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. You realize you've got to be lost before you can get saved? Believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly. You know why you needed to be saved? Because you're wicked. <laughs> Welcome to church. Aren't you glad you came on Wednesday? We're the Wednesday night crowd, preacher. Yeah, well, we're all sold under sin. Non-righteous, no, not one. You needed somebody to do something for you you couldn't do for yourself. Verse 6, even as David also. So in verses 6 through 8, he fits David in as a quick illustration. Even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works. That is Psalm 32. He's saying, listen, blessed is that guy. Saying, blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. You know, David was also a type of your salvation. You realize David committed murder and adultery. In the Old Testament law, those are two, two sins you commit that you're worthy of death. And God didn't kill him. God gave him the sure mercies of David... It was an exception God made for David that blew David's mind. I mean, that's why we say if as a born-again Christian, you can commit adultery, you can commit fornication, you can commit murder, you can be a crackhead, you can be whatever you want to be, you can live like hell and not lose your salvation. Why? Because you got imputed righteousness that was not based on you. It wasn't your works. Now, you understand, and I wish I had time to run all the references. If we could crunch five hours into one and be slow and clear and helpful with it, that would be great. The second you got saved, you got a circumcision made without hands, Colossians chapter 2, by the faith of the operation of God. When you got saved, God literally cut your soul away from your sinful body. That's why the Holy Spirit is in you and seals you unto the day of redemption. You're not going to lose your salvation. Ever. Why? Because God did something amazing and miraculous for you that had not been done in the Old Testament and they're not going to have in the tribulation and they don't have in the millennium. It's a totally different plan. All right, so they get all these verses from the Bible, but they're misapplying passages that they're applying passages to themselves that don't apply to them. It's a misapplication of Scripture. Now look at verse 9. Cometh this blessedness then upon the circumcision only, the Jews only, or upon the uncircumcision also? For we say that faith was reckoned to Abraham for righteousness, right? How was it then reckoned? When he was in circumcision or in uncircumcision? When did the circumcision come on the scene? After. Where was, where was Israel... When God began dealing with Abraham, it didn't exist yet, did it? 
he got the promise that he was going to become the father of many nations and that the seed was going to come out of him, which was Isaac, and he messed it all up and brought Ishmael out, right? That wasn't God's plan, but he became the father of many nations through the two of them. Abraham's a Gentile at this point. He says not in circumcision, but in uncircumcision. He was, he was living just like a Gentile when this happened. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had yet being uncircumcised. He's saying his circumcision was a sign that he might be the father of all them that believe, though they be not circumcised, that righteousness might be imputed unto them also. That's the Gentiles. Are you following me or am I confusing you? Abraham's your type. And he's saying, okay, we're going to go back to Abraham and we're going to use Abraham since you Jews think that you're the only ones that got it and you think that the law is what gets it done. Let me ask you a question. Your father Abraham that you're all proud of, when he received the promise, what was it? In circumcision or uncircumcision? Oh, like you mean, uh, 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 cat got your tongue, man? Come on. What's going on? You're saying that the Gentiles can't get it? You're saying that you've got to be under the law to be saved? You've got to have your works just for salvation? What's the matter with you, man? Uh, uh, uh. Gentiles, you know what? Y'all, we're not a Jew. and we got well, Who, you got the same father. He's the father of many nations. Verse 12, and the father of circumcision to them. Uh, verse 11, he received the sign of circumcision. Um, yeah. That righteousness might be imputed unto them also, the uncircumcision. And the father of circumcision, verse 12, to them who are not of the circumcision only, but who also walk in the steps of that faith of our father Abraham, which he had being yet uncircumcised. So he's saying when the Gentiles put their faith in Jesus Christ, they're walking in the same steps of Abraham because he put his faith in God. No problem with that. All right, verse 13, for the promise that he should be the heir of the world, was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. The law hadn't showed up yet. Do you see the point he's making? He's taking Abraham and he's using Abraham as an illustration to these people of what salvation looks like for us now. All right? Because the law... Where did I stop at? 14? 15. Okay, because the law worketh wrath... For where no law is, there is no transgression. Do you see that? You guys realize when there's no law, like a little baby doesn't understand the difference between right and wrong, that baby's not damned. That baby's born dead in trespasses and sin, born sold under sin, but when a baby is born, you don't have to go get that thing baptized. You don't have to go pray prayers for a baby that passes away. If somebody's so re- severely retarded that they're, that they're not, I, don't, I know nowadays that's an offensive term, but that's not offensive, okay? That's just a scientific fact. I, I don't mean that insensitively. I get so tired of people, you shouldn't say that. Like, if somebody's born so severely retarded that they don't understand, they don't have the mental capacity, guess what they're under? They're under grace. They, they don't get the law. How are they going to understand right and wrong? Are they sinful? Yes. The reason that they were born in that handicapped position, in a heartbreaking position like that, is because of sin. But they're not on their way to hell. They're under the grace of God. And here's another great verse to show you that. Where there's no law, there's no transgression. 
Therefore, it is of faith that it might be by grace to the end, the promise might be sure to all the seed, not to that only which is of the law, Jews only, but to that also which is of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. See it? As it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations. That's all about the flesh. Before him whom he believed, even God who quickeneth the dead and called those things which are not as though they were. That's what God can do. Man, he calls it, boy. He calls it before it happens. Most wonderful things about the Bible is that it prophesies things coming before they happen, and then they happen just like God says they happen. I can tell you where you're headed with your life. Ain't that terrible? What do you see? Well, some goofball said to me recently, he said, you got great things in your future. I can see it. I can see your future. I just stared at him. I laughed. I literally looked right at him and I laughed. And I said, I sure hope you're right. <laughs> and I just walked away, man. I'm like, I don't even have an answer for you, you weirdo. I mean, like, what in the world? I can tell you where you're going. You trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior? By grace, through faith, you're going to heaven. If you haven't, you're going to split hell wide open. Listen to me. The Holy Spirit of God comes to convince the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment to come. Right? So he convicts you of sin. That means part of your salvation, part of figuring out what salvation is, is you've got to know you're lost. And the Holy Spirit tells you you're a sinner. And Jesus says when he comes, he won't speak of himself. He won't speak of himself. That's what he said about the Holy Spirit of God. And now you go into these churches and all they want to talk about is the gifts of the Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit, the Spirit, the Spirit, the Spirit. Something's off because Jesus said when he comes, he won't speak of himself. What does he do? He said he'll speak of me. You know what a spirit-filled preacher and a spirit-filled Christian talks about? They, talks about? they talk about Jesus. You read your Bible? You run how many times through your Bible it talks about the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord... Read Paul's writings, the Lord Jesus Christ, and look for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. He'll mention the Spirit when he's showing you doctrine and when he's explaining how the Spirit works. The Spirit's not the enemy. He's part of the triune being. He's God. There's no problem with him. But it gets all out of balance with these people that all want to be about the gifts all the time and the Spirit constantly. You know what the Spirit's here to do? It's here to convict you of the fact that you are a sinner and the number one sin, the number one sin, the biggest problem you got is if you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior. I heard tell of a preacher who tried and tried and tried to win his father-in-law to Jesus Christ and couldn't do it. And the guy got all the way to his deathbed and he's laying on his deathbed and the man went in there and the man was a great preacher of a huge church. I mean, he led thousands of souls to Christ. And he went in next to his father-in-law's deathbed, and as he is sitting there talking to his father-in-law, and he's praying with him, and he's trying to comfort him or whatever, his father-in-law finally looked at him, and he said, Boy, would you talk to me like you'd talk to any sinner in your church? He said, Yeah, I sure would. He said, Just give me the gospel. Just talk to me like you would any sinner. And he gave him the gospel again, and his, his, his father-in-law said, All right, I'm going to trust Christ as my, on his deathbed. I'm going to trust Christ as my Savior. And he said he heard a prayer, prayed that he has never heard before and hasn't heard since. And the prayer was this, God forgive me for putting your son off all these years. You know what that was a sign of? Genuine conviction of the Holy Spirit of God. 
Because what the Spirit of God's going to do, and now you didn't say that prayer when you got saved, and it doesn't mean you weren't saved, okay? Don't get superstitious on me. What the Spirit of God does is He convicts about Jesus. He speaks of Jesus Christ. If you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you've never been convicted about the fact that God's Son died on the cross at Calvary because of you, because of you, when I'm leading somebody to Christ, I ask them, I say, what killed them? Well, by then they should understand because I've spelled it out. Well, sin. I say, your sin. I point at them, your sin. Boy, you can see it when the Holy Spirit nails that point home. It's like, I killed him. Well, that's conviction, man. That's, a spirit, that's what the Spirit of God comes to do. I sure hope you're saved. Listen, I'm just prophesying in your life. You ain't reading your Bible every day. I mean, you don't even have five minutes to grab a Bible and try to read it. I'll tell you where you're headed. You ain't heading where God wants you to go. Your life ain't planning on it. It ain't going to be working out the way God wants it. You don't have just five minutes to pray. I can tell you what's coming in your future. Church is an option for you. Listen, if I didn't have a church to put my family in, I would pack my bags and move to have my family in a Bible-believing church. I don't care if somebody calls me up and offers me a seven-figure salary. I would never, I could take better care of my family and watch online. Nope. I'd pack my bags and move. Why? It's that important. Why? We're talking about your future. You know God knows the future. And he lays it out in this book and he tells us how to live our life by this book. And if you'll follow this book, God sees what's coming, man. That's a wild thing. It's a powerful book in front of you. He calls things that aren't as though they were. So God's looking at an old man who doesn't have any kids or any ability at this point to even produce kids and his wife's womb is dead and God says, I'm going to make you a father of many nations. Oh, come on, God can't do that. Not with me. God can do whatever he wants with you. He's God. Ain't that wild? Somebody said to me recently, oh, you don't need a megachurch, which he's absolutely right. They said, Amen. <laughs> But I, but I thought this, and he said it the right way, in the right spirit, in the right context, the whole nine yards. I said, yeah, well, I'll never have a medical church like that. He said, yeah, you don't need a medical church. I said, yeah, you're right. And it was all good conversation. But I got thinking about that, and I thought, you know what? It ain't even my job. You know, that would take a miracle nowadays. You know that? For you to get three, four, five hundred people in a church like this, that'd take a miracle nowadays. And you want to know something else? Which, by the way, that's not a megachurch. I think it's, I think it's got to be over 500 to start qualifying. You, you, know, you know what else? It don't matter. God sees the future, and God can do whatever he wants. Some of you folks don't think you can win anybody to Christ, but I guarantee you, you can. I guarantee you, you can. Anyways, verse 18. Who against hope, believed in hope, that he might become the father of many nations, according to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. Abraham, against hope, believed in hope. You ever feel like you're out of hope? No chance, it's too late. Abraham, against hope, believed in hope. He still put his hope in God. He still had faith in God, even though it wasn't even realistic. Well, God can do it. Taking my mother-in-law back to the airport a couple days ago and 
she was telling me about her mom who got a terminal, uh, a terminal disease. Uh, was it liver, honey? Liver disease? A real rare disease. There's no cures for it. And they, they, it's not really very commonly known. And they gave her 10 years. Uh, they said, you're only going to make it about 10 years with this disease. And that was when she was 40 or 50. 50? Something like that. She should have only lived 10 years. She lived 30 years after that. She died in her 80s. And uh, my mom, my grand, my mom, my mother-in-law said, I kept telling her, Mom, I, I, know, I know what the doctors said, but don't worry about whether or not you're going to die. It's up to God, not the doctors, when you die. Yeah. And she lived three times as long as they said she was going to live. You say, what's your point, preacher? Oh, I don't know. Pray for Ramona. He shouldn't be here. That guy's been so busted up so many times. I mean, he's like a cat with nine lives, and you think he's on his 13th at this point, you know. It's a number of rebellion or something. He defies death, you know. You see, we've seen God do some amazing things. you got to put your faith in God. Abraham's a great illustration and example of that. Verse 19, and being not weak in faith, I think that's our problem, folks. He considered not his own body now dead. Do you see that? He was infertile. He was an old man and he wasn't capable of doing what God said was going to happen. When he was about a hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. She was, she was infertile. It wasn't going to happen. And God said, you're going to have a son. <laughs> why, well, why do you have a son? Because God said he was having a son. Period, the end of the discussion. That's all there is to it. That's God. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief. And that's the problem right there. That's the problem with most Christians right there. They just don't believe God. Don't believe the Bible. But was strong in faith, giving glory to God. And being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. If God said he was going to do it, he will do it. I don't know how. I don't either. But if God said it's time, then it's time. And if God's going to get it done, he's going to get it done. So you just follow God and you let God work it out. And therefore, watch it, it was imputed to him for righteousness. He received his imputed righteousness when he believed. You see the verses leading up to it, don't you guys? It's the gospel of the grace of God that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, was buried and rose again the third day. And when Abraham understood the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he died on the cross, was buried and rose again, he got imputed righteousness. Why do preachers teach that? He just spelled out for you while I was making some practical application to your life. He's spelling out a storyline to you and he's saying he got imputed righteousness by believing that God said you're going to have a baby at 100 and put his faith in God, gave glory to God, was fully persuaded God could do it. And God said, since you believe that I'm going to do what I said I'm going to do, I'm going to impute righteousness to you. Is that how you got saved? Because when you were 100, God told you you're going to have a baby? Listen, man, I, we're not even half. Amen. That's where I, exactly where I was going with it. He already made the point, so let's move on. No way. Now, it was written, verse 23, it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him. 
but for us also to whom it shall be imputed. If we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses and raised again for our justification. Do you see what he just did? He just took this illustration, this Old Testament story. What Paul was was a Bible preacher. He grabbed an Old Testament story of Abraham and he used him as an illustration of your salvation, of New Testament salvation as a type, and he ran you all the way down through that Old Testament story, making application, making application, making application to your doctrine. And then he said in the end, here's the direct application to you. You got imputed righteousness. He was the example. Here's the illustration. He believed God. You believed the gospel. You got your imputed righteousness the moment you believed the gospel. You know what else you got the moment you believed the gospel? You got justification. Justification is just as if I had never sinned. You were justified as though you'd never sinned. All of your sins, past, present, and future. Past sins, present sins, and all your future sins got washed in the blood of Jesus Christ the day you bowed your head and asked Jesus Christ to come into your heart, forgive your sin, and save your soul. Understanding the gospel, and you trusted Christ as your Savior, it was all taken care of. You got imputed righteousness, and you got justification that second. And I got a bunch of verses up here that I'm not going to run you to, but this is our justification. So if some of you want to come and get a picture of them later, you always tell me that you can't keep up with me when I'm giving you the references and stuff. So I put them on the board so you can look them up later. But over and over and over again, this is going to show you. Go to this one. Go to just Acts 13, 39. Go to one. And then I want to show you Abraham's salvation. And then I'm going to circle you back to verse number two. And I'm going to show you how to make a confusing verse make more sense. Just look at Acts 13, 39. And you can look at the rest of these later. And by him, all that believe are justified from all things from which ye could not be justified by the law of Moses. By Jesus Christ, you get justified. By believing on Jesus Christ, you get justified. That's your justification. You get imputed righteousness by believing on Jesus Christ. That's he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. You switch places. Now watch Abraham's justification. You saw Romans chapter 4 already. Go to James chapter 2. So Romans chapter 4 verse 2. Uh, if, you'll get that, if you'll get your finger there and then go over to James chapter 2. I'm going to show you I know, a mistake in the Bible where it doesn't match. Biblical midgets. You know, make these kind of accusations. So in, in Romans chapter 4, verse 2, it says, For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. Which sounds like Abraham was not justified by works, right? Am I the only one that sees that verse that way? Romans 4, 2, it kind of sounds like he's not justified by works. And a lot of preachers preach that and use Romans 4, 2, to prove he wasn't justified by works, he was justified by faith. And he got imputed righteousness by believing, so his salvation was the same as yours. James chapter 2 makes it nice and confusing for you. Look at verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by... Did you keep your finger in Romans 4 too? Look at Romans 4 too. I mean, like, God got amnesia or something happened here. 
Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Do you remember when that was? He got justified by offering Isaac on the altar by works. God said, okay, I'm going to justify you. Seest thou how faith with his works, and by works was faith made perfect, and the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. The scripture was fulfilled when he got justified. By his works. He fulfilled the beginning of something that happened before. It got fulfilled later. Listen. You're told in Paul's epistles that Jesus Christ is in you. And that he is the fullness of him that filleth all in all. You got fulfilled the second you got saved. And listen to me about this. You got all the Holy Spirit you're ever going to get the second you got saved. Being filled with him means he's got all of you. It's a matter of surrender to his leadership. But you got all the Holy Ghost of God you're ever going to get the second you got saved. He is the fullness of all things and you got all things you need in him and all things that pertain to life and godliness. You got it all. Abraham had a process. Verse 24, you see then how faith, by, how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. Likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she had received the messengers and they sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Well, we're in the book of James. It's in the New Testament. That's to a Jew in the tribulation period. Because it's written to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad, which is the 12 tribes of Israel scattered while they're running for their life in the tribulation period. Doctrinally, that's not to you for your salvation. Is that making sense? One verse he says he's justified by works. The other verse it looks like he says he's not. I'm going to show you though that's not what Romans 4.2 actually says. Go back real quick and look at the story. Go back to Genesis chapter 22. This is where he gets justified according to James. Genesis chapter 22. Start over there in verse number 9, if you would. And they came to a place which God had told them of, and Abraham built an altar there, and laid the wood in order, and bound his son Isaac, and laid him upon the altar of wood, laid, and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched forth his hand and took a knife to slay his son. And the angel of the Lord called unto him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here am I. And he said, Lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him. For now I know that thou fearest God. Seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him, and behold, behind him a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the stead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place Jehovah Jireh, as it is to this day in the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. And the angel of the Lord called unto Abraham out of heaven the second time and said, By myself have I sworn, saith the Lord, for because thou hast done this thing and not withheld thy son, thine only son, that in blessing I will bless thee and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of heaven and as the sand upon the seashore. And thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies and in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because thou hast obeyed 
my voice. What did he get right there? According to James chapter 2. When did you get justification? But according to Romans, when did he get imputed righteousness? Go to Genesis chapter 15. It was when he believed God. Genesis chapter 15. Look at verse 5. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward the heaven and tell the stars. That means count. It's a teller, right? That archaic King James Bible is so hard to understand. And tell the stars, if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. And he believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him. When did you get righteousness? The moment you believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. He got counted righteousness seven chapters and about 20 years before he got justified. He wasn't saved in the same way you're saved. Well, I mean, in Luke chapter 16, where were the, where were the righteous people at? Remember? The rich man went to hell. Where did Lazarus go? Whose bosom? Some jack-legged preacher, I mean a mainstream preacher, a big-shot preacher, thousands of people, thousands of people, said Abraham's bosom wasn't a real place. You know, in the Old Testament, they got salvation. He got it through a process that had to do with works and faith. And when Paul's using this illustration of Abraham's life, he's pointing out to you and I because he's teaching us our doctrine for salvation and he's using his illustration of how he believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness, right? And he's saying, look at, look at your father Abraham before he was circumcised who winds up being the guy that all the circumcised people credit themselves to and everybody steps back and just accepts it. Oh yeah, Abraham's your father. Hey Gentiles, how come you're not stopping to think that this happened before he was circumcised? Before he was circumcised God was showing us something in Abraham and he's using that illustration to teach us our salvation. He's not saying Abraham was saved just like you are. They weren't. Because if you think everybody's saved the same way all the way through your Bible, your Bible makes absolutely no sense. If I believed that, I would be preaching like this preacher I listened to this week from our area, our metro area, and he was saying, folks, I'm telling you, it's easier to get saved than it is to stay saved. Because he believes you can lose your salvation. Because he goes over to the book of James and he's looking at this stuff and he's seeing like he, he, he's misapplying stuff in the Bible and getting so confused about what he believes. He doesn't believe in eternal security, which we will teach on as time goes on when we do our doctrinal studies once we get through Romans. He doesn't believe in it. He doesn't understand it. So this is an illustration of our salvation, but he wasn't saved the same way you are when you go and you kind of actually look at it and you start spelling it out and you look at the really clear passage because it's really not fuzzy as to whether or not James is talking about him being justified by works, is it? It's very clear. Go back to Romans chapter 4. You can look at these later. I'll turn this back around for you, but there's three verses in Ezekiel that I want you to look at Ezekiel chapter 3, chapter 18, and chapter 33. You go look at those, and those verses tell you clearly that if a righteous man turns from his righteousness, he dies in his sin. 
In the Old Testament, if a man didn't keep doing right, if he let up a crack pipe after he'd been doing right his whole life and then dies because he overdoses, he went to hell. But you won't. And those verses make it very clear. Now watch this. This is a, I don't know if this is too much. I hope it's not. I've been doubting myself. <laughs> don't worry, we're going to run through it. Why are you laughing at me? I'm going to run through it for you. This is literally from Webster's Dictionary that anybody could look up. The word for, Romans 4, chapter 4, verse 2, right? The word for, did you guys know this? There's three columns, which is a full-page small print in Webster's Dictionary of the definition for the word for. And you look at that verse and you think, oh, that's what it means. For if. Folks, we don't study to show ourselves approved unto God and we don't realize that every word of God is pure. And so there's something in that word that you better stop and look at. If that doesn't match that, and it looks like it says this here and that there, either God is really impotent and can't preserve a book, and so I'm done. I'll see you later. Literally, I'll see you later. Like, I, I might say, like, can you just give me, like, two weeks of, of severance or something while I figure it out because I'll be making money by then. Literally. Either there's mistakes in that Bible or that thing is perfect and God wrote it the way he wrote it on purpose and I think you run into verses like that that mess your head up a little bit and confuse you because he waits to see if you'll just trust him either way. Four, it's a word by which a reason is introduced of something before advanced. Okay? So that, that was the one piece that I grabbed out of mind-numbing amount of information for the word for. But that stuck out to me as I was reading through there because what he's saying is this. We've gone through Romans chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3. We saw the Gentiles sold under sin, creation and conscience convicting them. We saw the Jews sold under sin, the law convicting them. We saw God's view of all of mankind in Romans chapter 3. And now he's coming to this argument. He's using Abraham since these Jews are so obsessed with Abraham and obsessed with the law. He's using Abraham now as an illustration to help us make sense of our salvation. Right? Because he's writing to the Romans, to the saints in Rome. And so the word for in Romans 4.2 is there to tell you he's introducing something that he's before explained to us. Okay? Does that make sense? Before advanced. Now, if. That's actually a Saxon word that's gif, G-I-F, and it means to give. Does anybody know that? I didn't know that. If there's any English majors in here and I mess something up, just give me a little grace, okay? Because I'm not an English major. If can be used as a sign or condition, or it introduces a condition, a conditional sentence. It is a verb without a specified nominative, okay? In like manner, we use grant, admit, or suppose. Regularly, the word if should be followed, as it were formerly, in Old English, the word if should be followed by the substitute or pronoun that. So it should say, if that, Abraham, right? In Old English. Like, this is what they're saying formerly. The King James Bible didn't use the word that because God is way smarter than everybody in the room. Okay? Watch this. Referring to the succeeding sentence or proposition. But that is now omitted 
and the subsequent sentence, proposition, or affirmation may be considered as the object of the verb. Now watch the illustration that they give to explain everything that they just said if that went over everybody's heads, right? Because nowadays we don't actually do English grammar in school anymore. And then we say, since we don't understand any English grammar at all, you need to rewrite the Bible to make it stupid like me so that I won't have a clue where I'm going or what I'm doing or whether I'm coming or going and I feel good about what I'm reading. Give. Remember? To give. The, the Saxon word for if. So here's an illustration. This is the sentence it's used in. Give, John shall arrive. Doesn't make sense, right? So when you're putting that original word in there, and they're saying now that is omitted, that would say grant, suppose, or admit that he shall arrive. So what that word if is saying is, it's not like a if in every usage. In some usages, in Old English, should have that there, but since it's not, it has a new meaning. So the sense of if in this use is, let the fact be, let the thing take place. If would actually mean grant, allow, or admit. Did you know that? I didn't know that. So now look at the verse based on that, and you look that up in an English dictionary. I don't, I'm not giving you the original Greek. He says four. So I'm creating an argument here. I'm using this illustration to create an argument based on everything I've been telling you to this point. And I'm trying to make the point to you that salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ without the law. And I'm using the illustration of Abraham. James also preached Old Testament and used the illustration of Abraham and applied that thing exactly the way it worked for Abraham because that's how it's going to work in the tribulation period. They can't take the mark or they'll be damned. They'll lose their salvation. They've got to endure to the end or they'll lose their salvation. They will be justified by their works. They trust Christ and they got to not receive the mark and make it to the end or they lose their salvation. So James used the same illustration differently. Paul uses it this way and words it so perfectly that only God could have seen this stuff coming. So in that sense, it's saying, let the thing take place. Let the fact be, Abraham were justified by works. He hath whereof the glory. We all talk about how great Abraham is. Well, you all really need to realize, not before God. No flesh glories in His presence. Does that make more sense? It's an error in the Bible. No, it's not. It's just the fact that we're not actually very educated. So we come across something that doesn't make sense, and we pull out our NIV, and it says, For if, in fact, Abraham were justified. You know what they just did with, in fact? They took a total disrespect for God and for his words. He said, every word of God is pure. He says, add thou not unto his words, lest he reprove thee, and thou be found a liar. I wouldn't want to be on the translating committee of the NIV at the judgment seat of Jesus Christ. For if, in fact, and now you think, oh yeah, see, Abraham wasn't justified that way. He wasn't justified by works. And now, all of a sudden, just by adding, in fact... You blur all the doctrine where people can't figure their Bibles out at all. 
And now you got people running all over this country right now that are born-again Christians that think they can lose their salvation. People that aren't born-again Christians because they think their salvation is faith and works and they never put their faith in Jesus Christ and His shed blood alone. And they're in churches and they're praising Jesus and talking about God and believing in all the rest of this stuff. And they're getting dunked in water to be saved because they're taking Acts 2.38 as though it applies to them and all kinds of stuff. Are you going to receive Jesus? Yeah, I received Jesus. Okay, get dunked in the water. Okay, now I received Jesus. And they're not even saved. Because you got somebody messing around with the Bible because they're too stupid to understand. Now, what I just gave you, what I just gave you is an illustration that I don't think any of us really process all this like that quickly, not with our education anyways. You know, 50 years ago, yeah, that would have made a ton of sense to somebody. But nowadays, probably not. What I gave you is this. Never interpret a confusing passage based on a confusing passage. Always interpret the confusing passage based on the clear passage. You know what James told you? He wasn't justified. He was justified by works. You know what happens when you run those references and look at it? It all makes sense. Now I approach something like Romans chapter 4 verse 2 and I might not have all that information that pastor just gave me, which is my job, which is why you support me and I'm full time. Right? That's what church is for because you don't have the time to do that with everything, do you? Right? So that's praise the Lord. Thank you for supporting me full-time and letting me do this with my life. You don't have any idea what a blessing that is to me to be able to do this with my life because that used to trip me up for a long time. But I never changed my doctrine and I never changed the Bible. I knew it was perfect. And when I got looking at this, I thought, good night, man. God's brilliant. (laughs) And he wrote that thing perfectly. So what he's doing is he's saying, for if that Abraham... He is taking their argument and flipping it back on them to try to prove his point. Is that clear as mud? Aren't you happy you came tonight? Now you're all scratching your head like, I'm glad Pastor figured it out because I have no idea what he was saying. (laughs) All right, let's go ahead and we'll be dismissed tonight. We'll pick it up in Chapter 5 next week in a word of prayer. I'm going to pick on somebody tonight. Uh, Brother Long, why don't you go ahead and dismiss us in prayer, please?